With me is Lindsay Murdoch, who has spent 50 years in journalism, of that 45 years with Fairfax in Australia, which includes the uh, Melbourne Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Of those 45 years, Lindsay has spent 25 in Southeast Asia and many other parts of the world. Lindsay is about to retire, and the obvious question to begin with is, what are the great changes you've seen in this region over the past 25 to 50 years? Well, thanks for the ta- taking the time to speak to, with me, Luke. While there's been momentous change across the region, when I first came out, there were really high hopes that Democratic Way was sweeping across the region. We, in, in the 80s, uh, we saw a peace plan, mission uh, come to Cambodia. We had democracy moving well in uh, places like Thailand, Malaysia. But in more recent years, there's been a pullback from democratic freedoms and um, I've really been disappointed by that and so have a lot of other people and we see at the moment a very severe crackdown in Cambodia. The Malaysian government, for instance, is in, uh, engulfed in a corruption scandal. It's been uh, closing down media outlets, uh, jailing critics, cracking down on, uh, on independent NGOs. In Thailand, the military government is uh, hanging on and has uh, broken numerous promises about uh, calling elections. So there's been a, a pullback and it's been quite disappointing. And the same, of course, can be said for the Philippines and uh, Myanmar, particularly with the Rohingya crisis, seems to be failing to measure up in some of the most basic ways of human rights. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's really disappointing what's happening in uh, Burma, Myanmar. In 2011, everyone hopes uh, soared. Aung San Suu Kyi got elected, was swept into office in late 2015. There was really euphoria on the streets. I was there. I saw people running into the streets, shouting, uh, hugging each other. Just tremendous feeling that Suu Kyi had finally got there after uh, all she'd been through, 15 years of house arrest. But she's been a profound disappointment. I mean, people like me, I interviewed her in uh, 1989. And uh, journalists like me and others, we put her on a pedestal, promoted her as, a, as the icon of democracy, the world's icon. We use all these cliches, but since she's been in power, she has been a real disappointment. She's failed to speak up for the Rohingya. 700,000 uh, Rohingya uh, having fled to Bangladesh. And that, that includes allegations of rape, torture, children thrown into burning fires, villages raised, people drowning at sea, mass graves discovered. Well, look, when I was in uh, the camps in Bangladesh last November, I heard stories that I'd never heard before in 25 years in the region. They were horrific. They were babies being burned, babies being slaughtered, babies being pulled from mother's breasts and slaughtered, whole families wiped out, families being locked in houses and set alight to be burned alive. I I believe these people. They're not just telling a story. They're poor people. They haven't been exposed to the outside world. They don't know how to lie, and they've told the most horrendous stories. These stories have been recounted in UN report, but still to this day, Suu Kyi, her government and the military deny they've taken place. They can't explain why 700,000 people have uh, crossed the border. Whatever you like to call it, you could call it crimes against humanity, you could call it genocide, ethnic cleansing, no matter what you like to call it, it is just absolutely unbelievable what's happened to those people. And it looks like nobody's going to be held accountable. And Suu Kyi is refusing even to acknowledge that it's happened. And that is just so disappointing. 
Is there anything the world community can do except badger, harass Suu Kyi and try and shame her into doing more? Well, look, it's complicated. Sure, Suu Kyi doesn't have power over the military. She's the elected leader, but she, she doesn't have the power. OK. But I think that she has failed to try and quell the anti-Muslim sentiment that's swept across the country. She hasn't stood up and said, look, we're all one together, we, uh, we're all equal. She hasn't said that. She won't even utter the word Rohingya. So I actually take a hard line. I think that my own country, for instance, Australia, should cut its military ties with the Myanmar military. They refuse to do so. The Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, has refused to condemn either the military or Suu Kyi, just saying that she's horrified by the violence. OK, but hasn't pointed any fingers. I think their fingers should be pointed. I think the Australian government, governments around the world should break military ties with Myanmar and should impose targeted sanctions on the military leaders. And I really believe that if there's not, then the military brutality will spread to other ethnic races in Myanmar because there's a, a climate of impunity. They'll go on with it. They're not being held to account and it won't end. Sounds similar in many ways to another subject close to your heart, the Philippines. You, you've covered the fallout from typhoons, you've covered military dictatorships, governments overthrown. It seems to be one step forward, two step backwards sometimes, and perhaps three steps forward, two steps backwards, but it never seems to get much better. And particularly with Duterte in power at the moment, the war on drugs, thousands slaughtered, his attitude to women, his attitude to people who don't quite fit in with his idea of, I guess, almost machismo. Uh, how, how do you view Duterte and his first what, year, year and a half in office? Go back to the start. We actually had big hopes in, uh, for the Philippines through the 90s, post-Marcos, you know, after the, the People Power Revolution. Democracy was on the march there, and the it actually, uh, in the past few years, has been one of the uh, strongest-growing economies in the region. But Duterte took power and basically has reigned over, over atrocities. I mean, his so-called war on drugs, or deadly crackdown on drugs as we write it, is absolutely appalling. I mean, these are operations against mostly poor Filipino people in, in the urban areas. They're, they're not targeting the drug traffickers. I don't remember a drug trafficker being arrested there. They're targeting the, the, the poor people, going out vigilante squads who connected to the police going around on motorbikes uh, assassinating people, pulling people out of their homes, kids being slaughtered, kids being caught in crossfire. I mean, they, at the moment, are playing it down, saying, oh, look, um, 4,000 or so people have been killed in the crackdown. Well, the NGOs and people on the ground there estimate that the figure is 14,000 and more. And put it into perspective, this is 14,000 people. Well, it's actually the highest number of civilian killings in the region for many decades. And just going back to the Rohingya, the flight of the, uh, of the Rohingya uh, since August last year is the largest movement of a civilian population in Asia since the 1970s. So that says a lot about the region at the moment. Where does that leave ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations? I mean, we all know they've long had a policy of non-interference with the neighbours' affairs, but 
the group was founded out of establishing peace and security across the region when the Americans pulled out of Vietnam way back in 75 in that kind of Cold War climate. ASEAN, okay, it's, it's proven to be quite solid on trade, but trade seems to be all that matters and the money that's being generated by trade seems to be focused purely on the businessmen and the politicians who run these countries. Not enough of that money seems to be trickling down at all. Well, the ASEAN free trade zone, the plan to have rapidly increased trade across the ASEAN, 10 ASEAN nations, you could argue has been stop and start and has been a disappointment. But also ASEAN as a body has, um, sure, it's got a, a policy uh, not to intervene in the, in, into the uh, affairs of other nations. But for instance, the Rohingya issue has really divided ASEAN. It's upset Malaysia, Muslim country. It's upset Indonesia. They don't like it. There's been some internal pressures within ASEAN. It hasn't cracked. But ASEAN has not stood up on these issues. It has not stood up and taken a stand. It should do a lot more. It should put pressure on uh, Myanmar to um, bring an end to these atrocities, to bring an end to the persecution of Rohingya in Rakhine State. It should pre pressure uh, Myanmar to give the Rohingya uh, citizenship and other basic rights. At the moment, since the 1960s, they've, they've been denied citizenship, they've been denied freedom of travel and other basic rights. And um, if ASEAN wants to have a future uh, and be respected, it's, it's got to stand up on issues like that. And even issues that affect it as a group, like the South China Sea, and we've just seen Xi Jinping has been effectively elected leader for life, if he wants. The way they've um, established their nine-dash line across international sea lanes of communication, and again, ASEAN seems split between those who will quietly take the Chinese money and say nothing, and those like Vietnam who have a lot at stake and a lot to lose. I'm pleased you raised that because one of my last assignments, I was in uh, Cambodia and went down to Sinukville and had a look at what the Chinese are doing there, mainland Chinese. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. That city, uh, a coastal city, uh, is being transformed with, uh, with Chinese money. Everywhere you look, there's huge cranes, multi-billion dollar developments there's 50 Chinese-run casinos. 87,000 mainland Chinese flew in there last year. I mean, it's the money that's going in there will have profound effect on Cambodia in the future. In Phnom Penh, most of the big tower developments are multi-billion dollar projects with Chinese money, and um, the Chinese are just pouring in there. Now, politically, Hun Sen... The uh, Cambodian dictator has been pulled into or gone into the China's orbit. He's uh, shunned the West. He's told, uh, he said that the West, he doesn't need the West's money, doesn't need the West's aid, and um, he's gone with China. Now, the impact of uh, the Chinese influence across the region is rapidly changing the region. Cambodia is an example of that. Right across the region, we're seeing increasing Chinese influence. Uh, they've poured huge amounts of money into East Timor, tiny East, East Timor. The Thai military government has moved closer to, uh, to China. There's also a, um, 
a breaking story that's been slowly coming out over the last few weeks. Brunei, once seen as an independent voice, simply because it had its own wealth and didn't rely on anybody, is now starting to run out of oil money, and that the Chinese have, uh, in, are investing $6 billion in return for Brunei's silence on Chinese claims in its territorial waters. Well, it's happening right across the region, and it's coupled, you know, it comes at the same time as uh, there's growing concern about the South China Sea. China's taking no back step there. I mean, there's talk of, uh, for a decade, they've been talking of a code of conduct, and there's been a little bit of movement for China promises, but then nothing gets signed. They're, they're not even looking at signing a code of conduct. They're talking about the preliminaries before signing of a code of conduct, and that will go on. For years, it's been going on for more than a decade. The US is concerned about its freedom of navigation. Australia is. The US is uh, moving ships close to the disputed islands. It's hard to see how it's going to be resolved, but that is going to be one of the key issues in the region, and it's coupled with China's expansion, or, or in, the, in the case of parts of Cambodia, like Cedar, well, it's a takeover. They've basically started to dominate parts of other countries. So some people are calling it uh, senisisation, which is, it's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, really it's another form of colonialism dressed up with a Chinese face. Well, what I saw in Sinopil was a takeover, that, and I described it as that, with the blessing of, uh, of the Hun Sen government. Th- this is just the start, and it seems that the money that's available in China is just um, enormous compared to the money that's available in, in these uh, in countries like uh, Laos, where they're building uh, a, a huge... They've got a huge train project to, to link um, the Southeast Asia from uh, Yunnan in China. Massive train projects, uh, Chinese-funded uh, projects in Thailand, projects in, in uh, Malaysia. Virtually everywhere you look, uh, there's Chinese money pouring in. It's huge. It's in the billions of dollars. And I'm wondering too, as you were saying before about democracy and taking a few steps back, perhaps a few leaps back, across the region I think we're seeing a reassertion of family dynasties. There are the old families uh, and there are new families, in particular uh, Hun Sen, he's he's the world's longest serving leader but his family is relatively new to the region and I think there are dynastical ambitions there. The same could be said for Duterte. Najib Razak in Malaysia, uh, old family, very similar uh, cases, but Aung San Suu Kyi, old family. I'm wondering, with uh, this sort of assertion of family power, particularly with the money that's coming in with China, is that making it easier for Beijing to to have its own way across Southeast Asia? Well, you're right, and the, the old uh, family networks uh, re- remain, but it's, it's family and, 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 and networks of influence, which, which a lot of the time are connected to the, the military, the case in Thailand. Um. And, of course, the military is closely aligned with governments in, uh, in the Philippines, in Cambodia, in Indonesia where family dynasties are also quite strong, but I think they have a different attitude to the Chinese, especially when uh, the Chinese said that their nine-dash line does extend south of Natuna Island, which has long been, long been recognised as Indonesian sovereign territory. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. Uh, the, the Philippines is particularly interesting on that because um, the Philippines military has had a, a 70-year uh, close relationship with the U.S. armed forces. There have been uh, huge military bases in the past in the Philippines, and, and the, in recent years before Duterte's election, they were growing closer to the Philippines, pulled together by the South China Sea issue. But when Duterte came in, he went to China and he said that... Um, you know, basically, he's having a love affair with China. He won huge amounts of contracts from China and um, indicated that the Philippines was pushing away from the United States. We haven't heard much from the, the Philippine military, the, uh, the top ranks, about this. They haven't challenged Duterte, but you'd have to think that the military there uh, knows where its bread, bread is buttered and they know that the Philippine sovereignty is at stake in the South China Sea issue. Uh, you just wonder whether sometime in the future that that could, uh, could reveal itself. How likely do you think a conflict could occur, a major one, in either the South China Sea or within Southeast Asia? I mean, the region seems quite brittle. There's uh, the military control of so many countries and their influence, and it does seem to be all about money and shifting alliances, which we have seen very much so in the last five years. What chances do you think of a major conflict in this region over the next five years to a decade? Oh, I think it's still uh, still a remote chance. I mean, I think that the, the biggest danger is some sort of uh, misunderstanding, particularly, you know, like in the South China Sea, if there was a uh, an accident, if there was a clash, there was, there was a misunderstanding. The biggest threat, it's always got to be North Korea because nobody knows really what's the thinking of the leadership there and, um, you know, they're nuclear armed. In the South China Sea, I think it's more likely, to, if there's any conflict, it's more likely to be through a misunderstanding accidental. I think that surely China, the uh, the other claimant nations, the United States, country, regional powers like Australia, they all know that war is going to damage everybody. I'd, I'd be surprised if, uh, if if anybody takes that step and I think the danger is that some mis- misunderstanding leads to an escalation of uh, tit-for-tat stuff from something unknown. In the meantime, there's no shortage of internal conflicts plaguing Southeast Asian countries. If we look at the last 20 years, uh, Arche, Pozo, War on Terror, Southern Philippines, half a dozen militaries there, 13-odd conflicts ongoing within Myanmar, not just the Rohingya. There seems to be no end to this sort of long-standing rivalries, insurgencies a lot. The siege of Marawi last year was indicative of the real threat of uh, terrorism across the region. I mean, that took the Philippine government by surprise. The ability and strength of the Islamic terrorists to actually take over that town and and hold it for for months really sent a message that that this is a real threat for the future. And, of course, there's been a long-running conflict in, uh, in in the south of Thailand. Doesn't get much publicity, but it's ongoing. There's bombs going off regularly. Up until this point, there's no indication that um, Islamic State or Al Qaeda have actually linked up with the with the groups there. But that's really a, uh, a grave concern if that was to happen with the with the advent of you know growing social media and the internet being used down there in the south. 
Um, the young kids coming up, if they hook up with these terrorist groups, that's a real, real concern. We've seen uh, bombings across Thailand. They haven't been major, but there's been a signal there that, that, that they look like they came from the south. That's indicative also of um, a threat that could escalate rapidly. It's not all peace across the region, and there, and there, are, real, there are real threats. I mean, in Malaysia, if you believe the authorities there, they've, they've uh, arrested... Uh, scores of so-called terrorists. Now, we don't know much about a lot of these cases, but they claim that they've uh, halted quite a number of terrorist attacks. Uh, Indonesia also, we know that the authorities have uh, claimed uh, quite a bit of success in cracking down on uh, arresting um, suspected terrorists. But there's no indication that, that any of this is going away and uh, it's going to be uh, part of what's going to happen across the region in the years to come. 25 years in Southeast Asia, it's a long time, and you've obviously seen a lot, you obviously know a lot, and uh, I think there's a lot of people in journalism who are hoping you're not simply going to disappear and that you'll keep working. What have been some of your more favourite moments? I've got the biggest kick out of saving lives. For instance, there was a a baby in East Timor and I went to see a doctor there, Dan Murphy, in a clinic, wonderful guy, and he told me, look, look at this baby, this baby's going to, four months old, she's going to die, beautiful thing, she's got a hole in the heart, we can't do anything about it here, I can't do anything about it, go and tell Australia that um, baby has no help and hospitals in Australia do have the, uh, the ability to save her if she was there. So I wrote a story, got on page one. The, the reaction was enormous. Um, Sydney Children's Hospital uh, offered free treatment. Uh, Rotary and others stumped up the money to get the little girl, uh, Maria, her name was, to Australia, and uh, she lived. So that's one of the most pleasing things. There's been a number of cases like that that I've, that I've been involved in, and I think in my career that's the sort of stuff that really made all of the hard grind and everything else worthwhile. And of course you saw that in other places around the world, like Iraq, where you're embedded with the American forces. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Uh, you know more about, about that than me, uh, Luke, because we were there together. It was amazing, I mean, going across the desert with the US Marines, you know, digging our own foxholes, seeing, you know, been, in, been, been there, seeing war war is terrible and once you've been there anybody who's been to war soldiers anybody who's anything to do with war like everybody i know says at, at all costs avoid them we shouldn't you know, the, the war shouldn't have taken place I, I i saw that i saw the suffering from a personal point of view i wasn't really uh, uh frightened in uh in iraq because you know i was always guarded by uh, big men with guns but the most frightening time I had in uh, had in the region was in Timor in uh, 1989 when the uh, pro-Indonesian militia were running around um, attacking people saying they wanted to kill Australian journalists. In my hotel there were bullets being fired into the room in the dead of night. In, in Timor in 19, 1989 all of the journalists there we were on our own and uh, it was frightening. I mean one of the colleagues, the Ducks College was uh, brutally murdered, his ears were cut off, it was horrible, and several Timorese journalists were killed, many Timorese were killed. The UN later put the figure at about 1,500. But one of the most disappointing uh, things that, that I think in the, that I've seen in the region is that nobody's been brought to account for that. 
that each team was basically looted. The the, um, the pro-Indonesian military and the military, Indonesian military, took out everything of value they could out of East Timor after they lost the referendum uh, vote for freedom there in um, in August 1999. And so, you know, nobody's been brought to account and I really th- think they should have been, but they, they basically got away with murder. Now, two questions. How did you get into journalism and what advice do you have for young journalists who are on the up and coming? Well, I was lucky. I got into journalism through nepotism, basically. My father, George Murdoch, was a president of a local RSL return service league club in a place uh, called Warrigal in Gippsland in Victoria, Australia. And um, he was friendly with the uh, editor of the, um, the local paper, uh, the Warrigal Guardian, circulation 1,500. And uh, they were in a beer one night. I I just I wasn't really good at school. I I um, used to goof off and was truant, you know, go go missing. But I managed to get a job on a, a bank, and I was due to start on the Monday. And on the Friday night, my father was having a drink with Tony Pettit from the local paper, and Tony happened to mention, "Oh, I'm going to hire a, a cadet journalist." And quick as a flash, uh, my old man said, "Oh, my second son Lynn would make a good journalist." So. He said, oh, well, send him down to see me. So uh, my father came home and said, forget about the bank. Journalism would be great, um, a, a great life. See if you can go down and get it. So I, I stood up the bank and uh, turned up, knocked on uh, Mr Pettit's door, and there was a little bloke, uh, old bloke, hunched over, counselled no- notice papers. And I said, oh, excuse me, I'm Lindsay Murdoch. He said, oh, you're uh, George Murdoch's boy. When can you start? So... It was pure nepotism, and I couldn't spell. I, I could barely, barely uh, string a couple of sentences together. And then we used to uh, write stories. Hand, uh, both of us couldn't type, Mr. Pettit nor myself. We used to deliver the paper in his in his little car and um, deliver them to the news agents. And it all started from there. But um, you know, I'm just so lucky that uh, that I got the break. Now, what I'd say to young journalists is, with newspapers really struggling jobs been cut right across the world in newspapers and uh, and the media i think you know if you're a journalism student or if you want to get into journalism the only way to do it is to is to get in and do it start doing it trying to get published somewhere um, and just work at it work hard never give up and hopefully you'll get the break i mean you just need to get that break you need to prove yourself and the only way to get that break is to is to get in and do it roll up your sleeves I've never been a clock man. I've never worked nine to five. I don't, you know, I've worked when the work is there. I've gone and have a beer when it's not. So that's the way I've done it. It's, it's, it's paid dividends for me. And I think good journalists, you know, they never work on the clock. They really give it all uh, when there's something to do and uh, and just work, work hard at it. And, of course, you're famous uh, for getting even when someone else has scooped you causing you many a sleepless night, I understand. Oh, well, I've always had a policy that uh, if, I, if, if one of my colleagues scoops me, I, I always tell them that I'm going to give you three backs. I meant it too. If someone scoops me, I wouldn't sleep. And I'd make sure that I worked around the clock to get three back. And then when I got the third back, I'd tell them. I think I came out ahead on that. But, you know, I think you've, you've got to be aggressive at times. And um, we're in the in, in the scoop business, trying to scoop our mates all the time. Um, and I think I think I did pretty well in that regard. 
And of course, along the way, you picked up three, four Walkley Awards? Uh, I got three, three Walkleys. And of course, one of them was to do with the surrogacy stories uh, that came out of Southeast Asia over the last few years. Yeah, surrogacy emerged uh, as, as a very big story in the region and um, I got tipped off by a colleague about uh, a case, uh, a baby called Gammy, who was basically abandoned in Thailand with a surrogate mother. Gammy was uh, a twin with Down syndrome and uh, the Australian biological parents uh, left Gammy and took the, uh, the twin, the baby girl, home to Australia. That controversy over that uh, prompted the Thai government to uh, crack down on surrogacy clinics in, uh, in Bangkok, uh, more than 50 of them, and subsequently legislated to ban commercial surrogacy. Now, what happened then is that, that, whole, that whole industry uh, just packed up and went to Cambodia. So similar stories broke out there. The uh, Cambodian government subsequently cracked down as well and, uh, and has uh, uh, banned commercial surrogacy. And subsequently, that forced some of those clinics and operators to move to Laos. So there's a similar thing happening there. I mean, commercial surrogacy seems to go into the move into countries where there's no legislation dealing with it. Uh, there are no checks and checks and balances and controls, and um, uh, they're, they're basically you know moving from one place to another. And again, it comes back to. Uh policies of non-interference in Asia where one would think that this would be an issue where they could get together and say the commercial sale of our children, the auctioning off of our women to produce babies for foreigners uh, is something that they need to look at and perhaps come up with a coherent policy across the region. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word commercial sale, but it's a complex issue, surrogacy, and it is a you know it is something that people who can't conceive kids themselves pursue, and I think they've they've got a right to it. But I think that you are completely correct in saying that this is one issue where where ASEAN as a as a body could come up with if they could come up with uniform laws and 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 checks and balances to protect the uh, surrogate mother to protect the baby and to also to protect the biological parents so that it's done in a safe, controlled way, that the, the proper medical checks in place and, uh, you know, no, 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 one, no one is damaged by it. It's a region that's fraught with problems and they don't always make the pages of newspapers, which brings me to a final note. What do you think you'll do? Most people are hoping you won't simply disappear well, it's been promoted by, as a retirement, but uh, I actually took a redundancy because um, a voluntary redundancy. Uh, I just felt it was the right time. I've got a few uh, balls in the air, but at the moment uh, I'll go back to Australia and uh, look at writing a book and we'll look around for other opportunities. But I'm, uh, I've just turned 64, I'm fit and I'm, uh, I'm up for anything and I'm not going away. On that note, Lindsay Murdoch, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Luke. It's been a pleasure.